<laughs> Makes you want to count your blessings and see what God has done, huh? So, yeah. Yeah, we send Adam back to school this week, and uh, so break up the trio for a little while here. But uh, it's good when it's together. Well, let's go to that marvelous passage that uh, we began our worship time together with in the book of Philippians uh, chapter 2. And uh, let me, uh, we want to look at it in its context because while it is one of the richest theological passages in probably all of the New Testaments describing the marvelousness of who Christ is and what He released and what He did and what the Father did. Um, Its point is to have an application to our lives and uh, not just to get our doctrine of who Jesus is accurate, because the reality is right doctrine always leads to right behavior, right? And doxology and all of that. Second uh, Timothy tells us the Scriptures have been given to us so that we might have right doctrine, so that we might believe right, but it never stays there, so that we might be reproved, so that things might be pointed out that are wrong in our lives. And thankfully, God just doesn't say, you're screwed up here for not just reproof, but for correction, how you get right and uh, how you get on the path, and then how you stay right, instruction and righteousness. And so, this is just one of those amazing passages that, uh, that God has given to us to really help our relationships with each other in the body of Christ and in the world in which we live. I want to just read the uh, 11 verses here from chapter 2. We'll pray together, then I want to go back and pick up some of what we did last week because there's such a flow here, we don't want to miss that. And then we'll look and see what application the Lord would want to make to our lives. So beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, follow along as I read. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others." Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Father, even as I read through this, I feel a 
really almost a hopeless inadequacy to even do justice to what is written here. And so, Lord, in my insufficiency and in our insufficiency to understand and comprehend all that's here, we look to you. And Spirit of the living God, would you teach us and would you lead and guide us into the phenomenal realities and truths about the Lord Jesus and about God our Father. And Lord, would you be pleased to make applications to our own lives. I know that as I've been enjoying and meditating and studying on this passage this week, I've just been reminded of how often I thought I was doing things right in humility, only for you to put your finger upon my heart after the fact and say, no, that wasn't humility. And so I just am confronted with the reality that we don't even know our own hearts very well. But you do. And thankfully, you're so gracious and kind to just put your finger upon those particular areas of our thinking and our speaking and our actions so that, Lord, you might cultivate in us a humility like unto yourself. And so we just wait upon you. And we're so glad you're for us. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let's go back and remind ourselves a little bit of where uh, we have been in these past few uh, weeks. You'll remember that Paul begins this letter by introducing himself as a slave of Jesus Christ. And I would suggest that that's the theme of this entire book that uh, we are to live as slaves to Jesus Christ. And the one word that we use to describe that we're slaves to Christ is by calling Him what? Lord, L-O-R-D. He is our Lord. That means He's our master and we are His slave. Now, a lot of people would say joy is the primary theme of this. Joy is a result of Jesus being our Lord. It's, it's the byproduct of what happens because nobody wants us to have joy more than, more than the Lord Jesus. Nobody wants that. And so you don't pursue after joy, you pursue after living as a slave to Christ. And one of the great fruits of that is joy. And Paul goes on and describes this marvelous relationship he had with the believers in Philippi, the church in Philippi, no doubt his closest church in, in relationship and financial support and all kinds of things. And he tells them how he's praying for them. And we walk through that amazing prayer. And then he turns and he allows them to kind of look through the window of his own life and say, I just want you to know how circumstances that everybody might wonder where God is have turned out for the good. Here I am sitting in prison, but you know what God has done? He's put me and given me a captive audience. Literally, he's chained me to a people group that has never been reached, the Praetorian Guard. And the gospel is going to the Praetorian Guard. And even as I'm faithful to share the gospel with this people group that's never been reached before, the believers in Rome who are also persecuted, man, they've got greater courage to share the gospel with the people that are around them. And so this has really turned out for good of the Praetorian Guard people and of the believers in Rome. And then he kind of turns it and lets them see into his own heart. And he says, uh, you know how this believing and suffering is a gift from the Lord? It's been granted to us by the Lord. Let me tell you how that's worked out in my own life and heart. He says, as I am here in prison, I don't know for sure that I'm going to, whether I'll be put to death 
or whether I'll be released. But here's what God has done in my own heart. He has brought me to a point that if I continue to live, if they release me from prison, hey, that's a win situation for me, for me, for to me, for to me to live is Christ. I have more opportunities to grow in my intimacy with Christ and to make him known. And if they choose to put me to death, that's even a bigger win. In fact, that's the preferable win. For to me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. It's the ultimate gain. And so Paul says, I just want you to know I'm no victim here. God has worked into my heart that I'm in a win, win situation. And so then he turns in from 26 into where we turned last week into verse 27 of chapter 1, and he, he, he's been allowing the Philippians to look through the window at his life and his ministry. And as we said last week, in 27, he begins to make them look in the mirror because there's some issues of unity in the church at Philippi. And so he makes them look in the mirror. And I forgot my mirror this morning. Uh, but he, he makes them look in the mirror at their own lives. And, and that's part of where the chapter 2 comes in is a continuing of that. So since I forgot my mirror, I want to ask you to do something that's going to be a little uncomfortable. Okay, lock the doors. Go ahead and clear your laps of whatever. Here's what I want to ask you to do. I want you to stand up, and we're going to capture the picture that goes on here in 27, 28, and 29. Here's the summary of it from last week. He says, we are citizens. He uses, he takes a whole phrase that's translated in English, one Greek word, citizen. Something the Philippians understood because they were Roman citizens. And they understood there was rights and privileges that came with that. They understood it wasn't an isolated life. It was a life to be lived with other citizens. And he takes that and he says, I want you to be standing firm as one. He says, I want you to have a unity of relationship. So take and lock your arms with someone next to you there. Okay? Everybody do this. I told you to be a little uncomfortable. Okay? Standing firm as one. And what? Striving as one for the faith of the gospel. Just kind of lean forward. Because we're leaning into this whole thing of a unity of purpose. We're all pointed the same directions. Roger isn't pointed to the right and me to the left. We're all striving for that. And then he says, not alarmed by opponents. No, oh no, where's God? What's going to happen? But rather unity of confidence in God. So go ahead and release your arms and just lift your hands towards God. There's a unity of confidence in God that we can be unified in relationships and that we can be unified in getting the gospel out. Now, that wasn't that bad, was it? Okay, go ahead and sit down. All right, that's the picture. That's what it means to live as a citizen worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says, as you do that, or here's how you do that, going into chapter 2. He says, how do you do that? Look at this person that I'm linked arms with. I mean, think about them. We got problems here. How do I do that? And what does Paul do in, in uh, first verse of chapter 2? Is there any encouragement in Christ? 
Does Jesus Christ ever give courage for the unity of relationships? What's the answer? Yes. Does he ever give encouragement to share the gospel? Yes. Is there any consolation or comfort of love? And the word is agape. Is there any uh, comfort when you get beat up, whether it's in the relationships in the church or relationships in sharing the gospel? Is there any comfort in, from, the, from God's love? What's the answer? Yes. Is there any fellowship of the Holy Spirit? Doesn't the Holy Spirit, isn't he bring unity to a body of believers? Doesn't he cause us to bear witness to Christ? Is there any fellowship going on in your heart with the Spirit? And in fact, your brothers and sisters, isn't there some affection among you and compassion towards each other? I mean, haven't you been a jerk to other people and you need to experience mercy from them? When people are jerked to you, extend mercy to them. And, and so what he does is he, he, he points to each of the Philippian believers. He points to each of us at Calvary Baptist. And he says, man, you, you got a lot of resources as citizens here. And it doesn't make any difference what kind of people you're in the body with. You have plenty of resources in Christ and in the Father and in the Holy Spirit. And in just being together as family. And then he does something, oh, one more thing here. And he says, as you do that, he says it's a sign. It's a living sign of destruction to the opponents of the gospel and salvation from the citizens and all that from God. And and so there's this picture where, where a church, whether it's the Philippian church or local churches today, is a sign of salvation to the opponents, a destruction to the opponents, and salvation to those who are citizens. So that's really what we, what we did last week. This morning we move on in a very interesting thing in chapter uh, 2, verse 2, and here Paul gives them a command. He uses his position as a spiritual father over them, and he commands them and says, make my joy complete. It's a command. It's kind of a funny command, though, isn't it? Make my joy complete. It sounds kind of like a self-centered command when he says, make my joy complete. What is going on here, and what is he doing Well, first of all, if we go through several places, and I think I put 1 Thessalonians in your sermon notes, Paul will say there, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? What do we want to be able to have joy at when we stand before the Lord? What do we want to be able to brag about when we stand before the Lord? Is it not you, for you are our glory and joy." The Apostle Paul saw as the thing to get the most joy out of, the thing to brag about, was when he shared the gospel with a person or group of people, and some of them would respond by trusting Christ as their Savior and Lord. They would be born again, and then for them to grow in the fullness of Jesus as their Lord. That's what floated his boat. That's what brought him joy. That's what he bragged about, not how great a tense he could make. This was his joy, and he's not alone. The Apostle John says this in 1 John 
1, 4, he basically says, I have written all of these things to you, the first three verses of 1 John. And he says, these things I write, why? So that your joy may be made complete. It's a theme throughout. He writes in 3 John, I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. One of the distinctives as we mature in Christ is what brings us joy changes. Just part of maturing in Christ, all of a sudden the things and the pleasures of this world don't bring the joy that being able to share the gospel and watch someone be born again and someone to grow in Christ. And because God always puts them within a body of believers, especially seeing them function in the body of believers, valuing the unity of relationships and the unity of purpose. It's just what brings joy. Why? Because one day every single one of us are going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we have been born again, if we have been growing in Christ, if we've been contributing to the unity of a body of believers and in getting the gospel out, man, that's when Jesus says, well done. Well done. And it gives no greater joy to the Apostle Paul than that the Philippians would have a great day when they stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the question has to be asked, I mean, I have to ask myself, is that what brings me the greatest joy in this world? And if not, then I've got some maturing and growth to do. Is it what brings you the greatest joy? It should. Because when all is said and done, that's all that matters. That's all that matters how we're contributing to the unity of a body of believers and how we're striving together for the gospel of Christ, how we're seeing other people born into the kingdom of heaven, maybe becoming our spiritual children and then maturing, certainly our own biological children. I mean, most of you know Christ and you know what it means, and doesn't it bring you the greatest joy when your own children or grandchildren are walking with Christ? Isn't that the greatest joy? And isn't the greatest grief when they're not? That's what he's saying here. Now, Paul had a lot of joy over the Philippians. Go back to chapter 1 in verse 4, where he says, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you. He had a lot of joy over what God had done in the Philippians, how they were fellow uh, receivers of the grace of God and getting the gospel out. He emphasizes all that in chapter 1, but what does he imply in verse 2 here? Make my joy complete. While there was a lot of joy in the relationship, it's not as much as it could be, right? He doesn't say there's no joy. He just says make it complete. Let's take it all the way. There's something going on in the midst of you that prevents my joy from being absolutely full. And he says, that's what I want to address. That's what I command you to, that you would make my joy complete. And so he goes on, and he really just, I've turned, termed it in the phrases 
of the rest of the verse there going on down. Oh, by the way, he says again, he just reemphasizes, make my joy complete, how? By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Isn't that the same thing we've been saying? Unity of relationships, unity of purpose. It's the theme throughout. It's what Jesus prayed for in the Garden of Gethsemane, that they might be one, even as you, Father, and I are one. And so it's the theme throughout. Now, he goes on, and as a good father, he doesn't just command them. He's going to go on, and he's going to say, let me just help you a little to understand relationships here. Let me tell you a little bit about who you are and how to have good relationships with other people. And man, I hope you're ready for the surgeon's scalpel because this cuts. You probably noticed it when we read it. He says what? Verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. What What does God know about us? What does Paul know about us? What did Paul know about the Philippians? He knew by nature we are what? Selfish and we're conceited. By nature we're selfish people and we're conceited. He terms it as empty conceit. Some of you may have vain glory. We by nature want to glorify ourselves. And he just puts that description before it, vain glory, because when we try to glorify ourselves, it's vain. In other words, it adds up to Zippo or uh, empty conceit. When we're conceited, it's absolutely empty. It will never add up to anything, at least anything good. It will add up to hurt, won't it? And so he says, do how much? Do a few things? Do nothing. Do a big zippo out of selfishness or vain conceit but rather with humility of mind, regard. Regard's an interesting word. Some of your translations probably say what? Count. He says, just by an act of your will, not how you feel. Regard, count others or one another as more important than yourselves. So you're by nature, I'm by nature selfish, I just need to regard, I need to, by an act of my will, count one another as more important than myself. By, I am selfish, by an act of my will, I have to count you as more important than myself. Now, that, that's not some moral thing where you're more of value, because we're all created equal in the image of God. It is a correction for our selfishness where I just have to put it in the column that you are more important than I am. And he doesn't stop there. He goes on and says, do not merely in italics, but it comes clearly from the last part of the verse here. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. And so now he deals not, now with our own interest. What, did, what does he know about us? What does God know about us? Who, who is our primary interest? Us. Us. I mean, it's just part of the fall, isn't it? We are by naturally interested in ourselves. And, uh, and he says, don't not look out for your interest. He doesn't say never consider your interest. 
But he says, don't only look out for your interests, but what? Also the interest of other people. And so he, he paints this picture. Let me just put it up on the PowerPoint like this. Uh, there's a selfish, empty conceit. I put it all under a humble attitude. A humble attitude, a humble attitude towards ourselves. I am a selfish person. That's humility, right? It's calling us for who we are. I am a selfish person. I will regard others as more important. I will not merely look out for my own personal interests, my family's interest. I will also look out for the interest of other people. Um, and so he, he paints it this way. And what does this do? This brings unity to the body of Christ. That's what it does. And here's what else it does. It's found in the passage that, as we've already gone done. It says, this is from God. I mean, who else can do this, really? I mean, don't you know this battle? Who can break me from being selfish and with humility consider others as more important than myself? Who alone can do that consistently? Can I say no? God can. Who else can cause us as a body of believers to be unified in relationships and unified in purpose? Who? Only God. That's why Jesus said and prayed in, the, in that prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and God, if this happens, people are going to believe. Only God does this stuff. But He does do it, doesn't He? And if you've been a believer very long, you have experienced the weaning off of yourself so that your interest and your consideration of other people is more important to have taken place, right? You've experienced some of that. None of us are there yet because we're still here, but we've experienced that. So how does that look in a church body? It looks from moving from a place of being a consumer, what does this church offer for me, to being a contributor. And I'm not just talking financially. It moves a person from being a consumer so that when they see something that they don't like and they complain about it, and they say, I'm going to go find another church to be in someone who recognizes that something is amiss and says, I'm going to help fix this. I'm going to become part of the solution here. That is just a practical application of this whole thing. And that's part of maturity. We expect people, when they get saved and in their immaturity spiritually, to be consumers, to be babies who are sucking on the bottle. That's what Paul says. You need to be nursed. You need milk. But man, you got to grow up. And when you see something that's amiss, when, whatever it might be, you move towards being part of the solution of it. You don't complain. You say, God, thanks for showing that. To me, obviously, I'm a part of the solution here. And you move towards that. And that is all from God, and it contributes to the unity of the body. And what a precious thing it is. Some of you probably got this uh, email from John Hutchinson last night from our Before the Throne, but he quotes these verses, and I, I was just struck by the way he put this, and his letter will describe who he is 
and what's going on. He says, Dear church family, thank you for your prayer, cards, food, and visits the last one and a half years during Lisa, that's his wife, her cancer treatment. Lisa still has some specific complications, but the cancer is in remission and she is greatly improved. We are in Nashville, Tennessee to see our infant grandson, and Lisa is overjoyed that she could make the trip. Last August, I wasn't sure Lisa would be alive now. We praise God for his grace and mercy. Thank you for your encouragement in Christ, your love, your affection, your sympathy, and looking out for our interest. Philippians 1, 2, 1 through 4. That's the body of Christ. And that's one of the ways that it plays out. And how precious it is when it plays out in that particular way. Well, Paul doesn't just help them understand relationships and who we are and what our mindset should be towards other people. He goes on and gives us the preeminent example here in the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll bring up Timothy and he'll bring up some other people in a few verses here. But here he goes into the preeminency of Christ. And he basically says, we need to live as citizens of God's kingdom like our king, like our King Jesus. And so he walks through and he basically says, he was humble in attitude and he was humble in action. And so let's just spend a few moments here on this passage and walk our way through it with the hope that it would just magnify how Christ and the extent that Paul means these words of not being selfish, but to consider others as more important, even as Christ was not selfish, and he could have been because his selfishness would have been perfect, but he considered others, he considered me, he considered you as more important. How he didn't just consider his own interest, but he considered our interest and need of a Savior. This is the example. He is the example. Verse 5, have this attitude. We're talking about an attitude here in yourself, some mindset, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, if you have the English Standard Version, it translates this verse uh, this way. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It translates it that you can have this mind because of your relationship in Christ. There's no argument that that's a true statement. Uh, And it's found all the way through this, verse 1, for example, But it seems best, and most translations have taken it as Christ is our example here. Like Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. And so it seems best that verse 5 is translated, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, there's a few words in here that are kind of related, but their difference is significant. And so let me just uh, walk you through those. There's the word form in verse 6, and it's also used form of a bondservant. And then there's the likeness of men in verse 7, and then found in appearance. The word uh, that he was in the form of God is a word that describes the, the actual essence of a person while their likeness may change. So, for example, I'll take Teresa as an example here. Teresa is a woman. That is her essence. She will always be a woman. She's created in the image and likeness of God, and she is a female. That will never change, but her likeness has changed over the years. She came as a baby into this world, and then she was in the likeness of a child, and then she was in the likeness of a teenager. Now she's in the likeness that we know Teresa as, and Lord willing, you continue to live, you'll take on some other likeness, and you say, Jesus, give me the resurrection body one day, huh? And so there's an essence to her that never changes, and there's a likeness that changes over time. This first word refers to the essence of Jesus as God, never changes. Jesus Christ was, is, and always will be God. And so it begins with a clear description. By the way, the verb there, existed, uh, some, of, some translations say being, is not the normal word for being. It's a particular word that also emphasizes something that never changes. So in both that word and the word for form, it emphasizes that Jesus is God and always has been God. And then it goes on and says, he did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Here we get into his attitude. Here's his attitude. His identity is God. Here's his attitude. He did not see the rights and privileges that were absolutely his because of who he was as something to cling to. He did not see his omniscience, his knowing everything all the time as something to be cling to. He did not see his being everywhere always uh, as something to be cling to. He did not see his all-powerfulness as something to be clinged to, and we could go on with other attributes, but he opened his hands to those things. He did not grasp them, but rather he made himself in the form of a bondservant, a bondservant to his father. And he says, Father, I trust you on the way I should use my all-knowingness. I trust you on the way I should use my all-powerfulness. I trust you on how I should use my all-presence. And the Father said to him, you are that, you will always have those attributes, but you are to be made... Uh, let's see, where am I? Taking the form of... And being made in the likeness of men. That's the incarnation. I, the Father says, have prepared a body for you, Hebrews. Uh, The Spirit did something over uh, Mary's womb, and God, without losing and stopping God, became man because He did not cling to His 
all presence. And he became a man in a particular location. And he trusted God for what he needed to know. And he trusted God for his power and the Spirit. And so his attitude was, I'm not going to cling to these. I will be a bondservant to you, O Father. And you determine how these things should be used. And he was made into the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man. When people saw Jesus, what did he appear as? A man. A man. The word appearance has an interesting connotation because it implies that it's not all that he was. He appeared as a man, because that's the only thing that people would understand, but he was more than just a man. He was still God. He was still fully God. And so he comes and is found in appearance as a man, and he humbled himself. He humbled himself to his father, and there's an act of humility that goes on towards sinful people that do not deserve any of his kindness, any of his mercy, any of his grace because of their rebellion, but he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And that wasn't the depth of his humility, but even to the point of death on a cross. Now, he's writing this to Philippians, the Roman citizens. You remember what we said about a Roman citizen? They could not be put to death on a cross. Never. They could be put to death other ways, but never on a cross. It was considered to be too torturous. It was only for foreigners and slaves. And thus, the bond slave to God the Father is put to death on a cross. The Jews considered being put to death on a cross as a scandal and says anybody who's put to death on a cross is cursed by God. And Galatians tells us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's what Jesus did. That's who he was. He was God. That was his attitude, rights and privileges that are legitimately mine. I hold with an open hand. The Father, and it was the plan of the Trinity from throughout, says you're going to become a man. And you're going to live a life as a man. You'll be appear as a man. You will be put to death. And you will be put to death by the means of crucifixion. And the point of all that is, so that the Philippians and you and I would understand the extent to which Jesus calls us to leave our selfishness and to leave our self-interest to look out for the interest of others and to humble ourselves considering others as more important than ourselves. This is radical, folks, isn't it? This is off the charts radical, especially in a culture that talks so much about making sure you protect yourself and you're safe. And it is the key 
to so much of what God wants to do within the church. Here's a quote that may be helpful. The dramatic distance Jesus traveled from the form of God to the death of the cross dramatically reveals the servant mind that each believer was to have. We could say is to have. Now there's a progression here that I think is important. In this progression is the identity of who Jesus is. He is God. And then there's the attitude, and then there's the actions. And I would suggest to us that it's the same thing for us. It's important that we understand who we are. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. We are citizens of heaven. Is that up for grabs? No. In no way, shape, or form because we are bought and purchased, and he who began the good work is going to bring it to completion. Why do I say that? Because that is absolutely critical to have this radical attitude. Because to the extent, well, let me say it this way. Uh, when we see, serve other people, when we consider their interest is more important than ourselves, sometimes there's going to be the joy of watching God bring someone into the kingdom and help them grow. And when that happens, you say, yeah, this is right. I like this. But there's times when we do that that we're going to get chewed up and spit out. There's times where it's going to hurt. Did it hurt Jesus? How do you do that? And how do you get hurt and, and you not say, never again will I do that. By knowing who you are and being really clear on your identity. I am a citizen of the kingdom of heaven in my pursuits to be unified in the body of Christ and to work for the gospel. I am getting beat up, but I will not stop in pursuing unity in relationships and unity and purpose to get the gospel out. Why? Because I am a citizen headed to heaven. Or, to use the Apostle Paul's terms, I'm in a win-win situation. If I continue to live, it's Christ. And if I die, it's gain. And so this is this radical attitude. So, identity, Jesus was God, his attitude, and then his actions. Now, you'll notice as Paul goes through here, he does not describe the actions of the believers for Philippi nor for us today. Why? Because the attitudes will, the actions will change. But with Jesus, he does say identity, attitude, here's the actions of what Jesus did. And the reality is, if we will be clear on our identity as citizens of heaven and the resources that we have, uh, verse 1, and, and we'll keep cultivating this attitude of humility, we'll take the right actions, won't we? We'll, we'll, I mean, if we see others as more important, aren't we going to say the right things and not say things that hurt? If, if we have the right attitude, aren't we going to do the right actions? Yeah. Our problem is we try to manipulate the actions so they look good without having the right attitude. And so he wants us to have this attitude, this mind that the Lord Jesus had. Now, we're going to come back and look at verses 9 and following 
more next week, but let me just run through them because this is important. Because the, the, the freak out factor is, if I live a life like this, who's going to take care of me? If I'm going to be like this, who's going to take care of me? Well, who took care of Jesus as the Son? The Father did. There's a radical switch uh, in, from verses uh, 8 and 9, and it moves from Jesus being the subject to God the Father being the subject. And, 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 and Paul says, don't worry about it. God the Father exalted Christ above everybody and gave him a name. And everybody will recognize him as Lord, believers and unbelievers. It doesn't make any difference in their, if they're in heaven. It doesn't make any difference if they're on earth. It doesn't make any difference if they're under the earth. God will take care of that part. The Father will take care of that part. What's the application to the Philippians and to us? God will take care of us. We don't have to be worried about glorifying or our conceit or building ourselves up. God will take care of that. And He will do it in the right way at the right time. Probably never as soon as we think it should be. But He will. And who gets the glory then? The last part of verse 11. To the glory of God the Father. So let me just jump over to 1 Peter as we wrap up this morning. And this is what Peter says. He says, clothe yourself, all of you, with what? Humility Humility toward one another. And he makes a statement there that ought to terrify us. For God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. The, the, the verb is, God is actively opposed to the proud, and He actively gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. And cast all your anxieties. There's a lot of freak out about this whole way of living. This is a life filled with anxiety, if you will, until we learn to cast our cares upon Him because He cares for us. And so this morning, the Spirit would want us to clothe ourselves with humility. And I don't know exactly what that looks like in your life, but He does and He wants to make it clear to each of us. So would you bow your heads, please? Lord, we're a people that desire to clothe ourselves with humility. And so, Lord, where we are acting in pride in our attitudes, would you just graciously but forcefully put your finger on that so that we might repent be corrected, and walk in humility. Lord, we want to be those who are experiencing Your grace. We want to be those who walk in Your grace. We want to be contributors to the unity of the body. We want to be those who contribute to getting the gospel out in a unified way. So just take a moment and respond to the Lord.